First month just about done with. Hard to believe, right? But August 19th, September 18th, or just about a month, just about a month into the class. So, a couple assignments uh, coming up. The only one due this week will be the article review, other than the lab, if you haven't turned that yet into me from last week. Uh, first article review is due on Friday. And then homework three, which I gave out last time, will be due next Friday. And then the next couple things will be the third quiz, which will cover chapters four through eight as one half of it, and chapter nine is the other half, which will be probably the weekend after homework three is due. And then exam two I have scheduled tentatively for the 2nd of October right now, covering chapter three, which we're just about done with, then chapters four through eight on the planets, and chapter nine on the sun. And then once we get through that, then we go out to, the, to look at the rest, of the rest of the universe, everything else. So that's what's coming up. I did put all grades in this morning of everything that was turned in through last class. So all your grades are in there, unless you turned the homework in online, which I just got those all today. So if you turned it online, there's no grade in for you yet. I will grade those probably tonight and have grades up hopefully tomorrow for you. So if you turned it online, don't be worried that you don't see a homework grade. If your friend is seeing it, it's only because if I got them in class, I had them. And while my daughter was taking her Taekwondo class, I sat there and graded, graded all the homeworks. So I didn't have the other ones at the time. So, so the other ones will be probably graded tonight. I have those all ready to go. Questions? Alrighty. Picture of the day for today is uh, M45, also known as the Pleiades Star Cluster. M45 is, uh, M is for Charles Messier who cataloged about 100 objects that looked fuzzy through small telescopes and were often confused with comets, something that astronomers were looking for way back in the 16, 1600s, early 1700s. So he'd cataloged a whole bunch of objects so that people wouldn't get confused. They'd know that this was an already known object and they wouldn't sit there uh, trying to follow it or figure out what, whether it was a comet or not. They'd already have this list of 100 and some objects that were already known. The Pleiades star cluster is one of those. Uh, this is one star cluster that you can actually see with your naked eye. Uh, out in the morning right now, you can see Orion, you can see Orion early in the morning. And, or if you want to wait a few months, you'll be able to see it better in the evening. But Orion is right about here. We've looked at Orion on some of the things. Orion is about there. Right up to the upper right of it is the constellation of Taurus. And if you look in that general direction, you'll probably see this fuzzy patch out of the corner of your eye. It doesn't jump out at you when you stare at it. But if you look sort of away from it a little bit, you'll see this fuzzy patch. And that's actually the Pleiades star cluster. So you'll actually get to, you can actually see that won't look anything like this. This is a view that was taken not only through a telescope, but taken with about 30 hours worth of exposure. So picking up a lot of detail that your eye is never going to see in its tiny fraction of a second exposure. So lots of dust and lots of material around it, something that you will not get to see, we would not get to see with your eye, but that you can see when an image is taken with a telescope like that. You see a lot of, a lot of dust around it. That dust is being illuminated by the star, by the stars. So that's where you're seeing all this blue light in the middle is really just the reflected light of those stars. You see a lot of red as well around it further out. A lot of red stars, a whole bunch of red stars. Some of those could be stars that are really red, actually have that color. Some of them also could be stars where we're looking through a lot of dust. And when we look through 
dust at a star, even a blue star, it tends to look red because the red light is very good at penetrating through the dust. It escapes. The blue light gets scattered out all over the place, which is why we see all this blue light scattered all over from, this, from, this, from these stars. So you see a couple of number of different, different things in, in this image. Question? Questions? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Will it appear? The the cluster itself will not look red, but some of these stars, these other stars, will. These stars, these stars will still look blue. They're not coming through. They're not. There's not enough dust there. Some of them that are behind thicker dust areas will actually look red, but they might not really be red stars. They could be real red stars and close, or they could be really yellow stars or other type stars that are just going through a lot of dust. Something we'll look at when we get through, get into chapter 11. Anything else? Alrighty. Well, let's go on and finish up telescopes. We were just about done. I was just looking at the last couple types. We'd looked at all the different. We'd looked at optical telescopes. We looked at radio telescopes. Uh, we talked a little bit about infrared and ultraviolet. The only ones that are left that we haven't talked about are X-rays and gamma rays. Now we save them for last because they're the most difficult. Uh, very high energy, so they have extremely high energies, and they're hard to focus. You know, if you send X-rays at a mirror, they're not just going to bounce off it like regular light does. They have too much energy. Energy they start penetrating through mirrors. So X-rays and gamma rays cannot really be focused in the same way. X-rays can be focused if you kind of glance them off the mirror. If you try to send them straight at a mirror like this and bounce them off, now X-rays won't do that. So X-rays would not be able to do that. They won't just bounce off at this nice steep angle. But if you do it at a very shallow angle here, shallow meaning you come in just kind of skip it off. the edge, then even though it has a lot of energy, you can still actually start to bring those. You can get those to bounce off a reflective surface at that very, very shallow angle. Sort of like skipping a rock, right? If you throw a rock in a pond, it's going to sink. But if you get a glancing blow, you can get it, you get it glancing just off the surface, you can actually get it to bounce and to reflect off the surface. Normally it wouldn't do that. It's too dense and it would just sink into the water if you tried to send it in like this. If you get it at that very shallow glancing angle, then you can get it to actually bounce off. And in the case of x-rays, you can actually get them to focus by doing this a couple different couple times. So you'd get a couple times here. Here, you bounce them once here. And then you bounce them again and you eventually bring them to a focus and you can actually take an, take an image of it that way. The mirrors are set up like this big cylinder, cylindrical uh, tubes going in and you just, they're properly angled so you can bounce and bounce and then bring the, it to a focus and to a detector later. So you can actually get an image taken in x-rays. Something you, so it's, but it's a little bit different mechanism than you have to use for radio waves, you know, work like this. Visible light worked like this. It bounced off however you wanted to send it in. X-rays, ultraviolet, all work pretty much the same. 
slightly different materials perhaps for the detectors and for the mirrors, but the process was the same. When we get to x-rays, it's a little bit different. You can't just focus them directly. And we get some images. Here's an x-ray image of a supernova remnant. This is Cassiopeia A, one of the, strong, one of the stronger radio sources in the sky. And again, you see the image in x-rays. Anything you look at that's not invisible light is always going to be a false color image. So you're looking at the intensities, very high intensities where you've got the yellowish and white, very low intensities when you get out to the, to the purple. So where all of this material is. This is a exploded star, a star that exploded. Um, uh, remnant down here, core down here at the center. And all the material, the outer layers of that star, expanding out into space. And you can see where all of the energy is being released, where all the hottest areas are, because those are the parts that are going to emit x-rays. When we see x-rays out in space, it's telling us some, some about very high temperatures and very energetic objects. When we start looking at x-rays, the higher the energy of the light that we're looking at, when we start looking at x-rays or ultraviolet, we're looking at very hot, very hot, very energetic objects, such as supernovae remnants or the remnant of an exploded star, as you see here. Now the other thing that we, the other one that we can look at is gamma rays. Gamma rays are even harder. Gamma rays have even higher energies than x-rays, and you can't focus them. They won't even bounce off at a very shallow angle. There's nothing you can do to focus them. That doesn't mean you can't detect them. You can still put a detector there. You can point your telescope in a direction in the sky and look at some small section of the sky. And you can detect that there are gamma rays coming from that. But you're never going to be able to get it into a good focus. You can see, yeah, there's lots of gamma rays coming from this particular point in space. But you're not going to be able to magnify in, get real high resolution, look at that image, and see any more detail on it. You're going to get a very vague image as to where those particles are coming from but not any, no great detail, no great images. As we saw that beautiful image of a supernova remnant for x-rays, we saw lots of pretty pictures for ultraviolet and infrared and visible and radio. You can get all sorts of nice images. You can't do that in gamma rays. But you still want to study them even if you can't locate them that precisely. You can get a pretty good idea by where you're pointing your telescope. And These are even more energetic objects. These are gamma rays. Objects emitting gamma rays are incredibly hot, emitting a lot of energy. Some of the most energetic objects in the universe. There are things called gamma ray bursters, where we get a burst of gamma rays from some object out out deep in space. Um, Typically, could be something like a collapse. It could be a very core of a collapsing star that gets exposed could be a couple of very compact stars combining together. We'll look at some of that later on and talk about that a little bit. But some of the most energetic, you take two very compact stars, not stars like our sun, but stars like our sun crushed down very tiny, combine those two together, and in that immense explosion there, before it creates a black hole, which would probably be the end result, you emit a big burst of gamma rays, extremely high energy, par- extremely high energy particles. But we can only look and get the general direction and say, yeah, it's about there in this little area, but we can't really narrow it down any closer than that. So we don't get any nice pretty gamma ray images. We just get detection as to what parts of the sky they are coming from. Question. Yes, sir. Uh, Sorry. Do uh, quasars uh, emit uh, gamma ray bursts? 
Uh, not quasars in themselves that I know. I mean, they'll, they'll emit some gamma rays. They'll probably be detectable, but they're not the gamma ray bursters for anything I've seen. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? Alrighty. Well, let's see. Last thing I wanted to show for this is this is a set of images of the same object. We're looking at exactly the same thing here. In fact, we're looking at the entire sky, but essentially we're looking at our Milky Way. And if we, the idea is here, if we look at our Milky Way, that's a picture of the Milky Way. So is that, so is that, so is that, and so is that. They don't all look the same, do they? In fact, some of them look quite different in comparison. You've got this big loop of material out here. You've got some little sections here on this one. They don't show up on this picture. Um, you've got some things here. You've got some darker areas here. Where do they show up? They look bright over here. It's exactly the same thing. The only difference is, is what wavelength we're looking at. There is, only one missing here is an ultraviolet, but this is in the radio part of the spectrum. Infrared, visible light, that's our Milky Way we're familiar with. X-rays and gamma rays. So where are these, where are these different types of radiation come from? And they can tell us a lot of different things that we're looking at different parts of the galaxy are bright in each of these types of radiation. So by looking at one of them, we get a very narrow view of what our galaxy is like. You know, that's what we knew for thousands and thousands of years, till about 100 years ago when we could start adding in something like this. But that was all we knew. But when we look at it in radio, we learn something different. It's a lot more condensed to the center there. Same as in infrared, we're actually looking into and seeing parts of the galaxy in infrared and radio that are blocked out to us. And then in x-rays and gamma rays, you start to learn, uh, learn other things. There's some material here, but there's also a little bit that's scattered all over, and you get some of these very interesting loops of gas. Could those be leftover you know, material from collisions, or the Milky Way has swallowed up another small galaxy, and that could be streams of material left from that. I don't know for sure, I haven't looked at it into any more detail, but that's the possibility of something that could be causing that. So the whole idea is that not just our Milky Way, but anything we look at looks different when we look at it at different wavelengths. So being confined to just visible light isn't very helpful. Now that we have the capability to be able to look at things in radio and infrared and x-rays and ultraviolet and gamma rays, we can really get a more complete picture of different astronomical objects. All right, let me finish up chapter three, just go through the little review here and kind of summarize what we've done the past few classes. We talked about two different types of telescopes. We had refract refracting using a lens and reflecting telescopes using a mirror. Everything we use today is a reflector. So every modern research telescope that is being used is, and being built and being planned is a reflecting telescope. Refractors are still used in some cases. There are older ones that have been used. Or some amateurs will still use some as smaller size telescopes. But anything of a professional telescope size, several meters across, is always a reflector. We mentioned the CCDs, charge coupled devices, that we use to collect the data. And then we can do several different things. We can look at the image. We can make a picture of the data. Sometimes that's what astronomers want to do, depending on what they want to learn about that object. They may want to split that light into a spectrum. We looked at that last week, looking at a spectrum of different, different gases. 
So you may want to understand that to learn about it. Or measure intensity, brightness, count how, many, how much energy is coming from uh, various, various parts of the object, for example. Why do we want to make bigger telescopes? Well, two, two main things. One is that they gather more light, in fact a lot more light, than smaller telescopes. Recall, a telescope that's twice as big gathers four times as much light and means that we can study objects that are four times as faint. They also have a much better resolution. If we can ignore the atmosphere, they'll have a, two, a twice as big telescope will have twice the resolution, twice the detail it's able to see as compared to a much smaller telescope. So they help us in terms of gathering more light and in terms of getting better resolution. Um, problem with the resolution is that it is limited by the atmosphere. So the atmosphere tries to smear out some of that light and limits how good resolution that we can how good resolution we can get here on the Earth. If we talk about putting a telescope in space or radio telescopes, they're only limited by the size of the telescope. That limits how much resolution that you can get, it's how big the telescope is. It's the diffraction of light, but it's really how big the telescope is. So the bigger telescope is going to get you better resolution. There's no atmospheric effects. Certainly if you're in space up above the atmosphere, no atmospheric effects. Radio telescopes do pass through, but the radio waves are not really affected passing through the atmosphere, so this, the resolution is not affected in that case. One way to get closer to this here on Earth, get closer to the theoretical evolution resolution that you're expected to get, you would expect to get is by using active optics. That's sort of deforming the mirror. So you have a mirror that's instead of this being this big thick hunk of glass that has a silver side to it that you reflect the light off of, you make a thinner mirror and then you have all sorts of little, you know, pushers behind it that can adjust it and deform it a little bit to take the atmospheric effects into account. So essentially, you've instead of having a nice perfectly smooth mirror, you have an irregularly shaped mirror, very slight deviations. You're not making a big bump in it or anything. Very slight deviations, but you can use that to take out the atmospheric effects. Minimize them. You're not going to get rid of it completely. Nothing's going to be perfect in terms of eliminating the atmospheric effects when you're stuck looking through the atmosphere because our atmosphere is not nice and predictable, right? Otherwise we'd know exactly what the weather was going to be like two days from two days from now. And we don't. So it's not predictable, but even on that smaller scale, but we can use it to minimize those effects and get something closer to the resolution that a space-based telescope would be able to get. Radio telescopes have a big problem in that their wavelengths they're looking at are so long, they need very big telescopes to be able to, uh, collect, to collect enough light to get enough resolution. But even with the giant telescopes, we looked at Arecibo, right? 300 meters across, three football fields could fit across the diameter of this telescope. That still doesn't have resolution that comes close to what a, sm a small optical telescope would get. The wavelengths are so much longer. Interferometry is what radio astronomers use to improve that resolution. And that's putting one telescope here, putting another telescope 10 kilometers away, observing the same object at the same time, and combining those signals. And that gives us an effective diameter of that telescope of the distance between them. So if your telescope's here and your telescope's 10 kilometers away, you've got a 10 kilometer telescope. Pretty big. You can do that across the entire surface of the Earth. You can actually 
radio astronomers, you know, do telescopes in different countries, and you can actually get a telescope that's effective diameter is the size of the Earth. Then you're pretty much stuck. You can't get a whole lot bigger than that. Well, yeah, you could if you want to put something on the moon or if you want to put something you know, out further in the solar system, but you'd have to go much, much further away. Putting something in orbit around the Earth helps you a little bit, but if you add a few hundred miles to the diameter of the Earth, eh, you're getting a little bit bigger, but is it really worth the effort? For that little tiny percentage you're getting, if you're really wanting to get something better, you've got to start putting, starting talking about putting things on the moon or elsewhere out in the solar system. And finally, we looked at the other different wavelengths, infrared and ultraviolet telescopes. I didn't really go into great detail on them. They're pretty much similar to the optical telescopes. You can use the same types of mirrors. Uh, in infrared case, you could use the same types of lenses uh, to be able to collect the light. Ultraviolet has to be up above the atmosphere. Infrared, we can do some infrared astronomy from the surface of the Earth. Usually tall mountains. Any place where it's very dry, where there's not a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere, the infrared radiation will make it down to the surface and can be observed. Ultraviolet, most of the ultraviolet, except for some of the very nearest ones, uh, very part that's very close to the violet, gets blocked out by the atmosphere. Fortunate for us, right? We know what the little bit of ultraviolet that does get through can do to your skin in the summer. If you sit out in it too long, you know, you can get pretty well burned. Can you imagine what the higher energy ultraviolet would do to you if it were able to get through? X-rays and gamma rays all astronomy also have to be done from above the atmosphere. Fortunately, we're not being bombarded on the surface of the Earth by X-rays and gamma rays. Wouldn't be a very pleasant thing for us here. And I talked today about how you can take images in X-rays. It's a little bit different. You've got to kind of glance the, glance the x-rays off the mirrors, but you can st you're still able to focus them. But it's a different process. Gamma rays, we can detect, but we cannot. there's no way to make an image of them. There's no way to be able to focus those into an image. All right. Questions on chapter 3? Quiet day today. OK. All right. Now we've got five chapters to do, all at once. So we'll get started. Again, as I said last time, this next unit, chapters four through eight, is one unit. That means it's equally weighted with chapter three. So don't spend, I don't recommend spending your time. You're welcome to if you've got lots of free time, right? Right? I know how that works. Yeah. So if you have lots of free, you're welcome to read those chapters. Otherwise, I recommend looking through the slides. I have the same set up on D2L for you. If you want, those are the sections that I'm concentrating on that I'm going to be looking at for quiz or exam questions. I don't want you to spend time studying, concentrating on studying chapters 4 through 8 when for your exam, that'll be one third of your next exam. So you don't want to spend, spend all your time on these five chapters. So your next exam is technically on seven chapters, but five of those are one unit. So. Take that into account when you're reading or when you're looking at anything else on it, that it's, it's a smaller portion of what we're, what we're covering. But chapter 4 through 8 cover the solar system. So um, we do a whole class on this. A couple of you have taken that already. We go through a uh, solar system class, which this would be the rest of the semester. We'd sit there and go through each planet in detail. I'm not going to do that. We're going to go through each planet. I'm going to talk about the solar system in general. I'm going to talk about the uh, different planets and some of their moons. We'll go through some of that as a brief overview, but we'll spend about as much time on these five chapters as I typically spend on one of the others. So 
Probably about three lectures or so is typically what we, what we get through. So for the solar system, we'll get started here. Chapter 4.1. Um, solar system has changed and has expanded greatly uh, over the past few hundred years. What do I mean by that? The solar system really hasn't changed in reality. All of the stuff that we know now was pretty much there a thousand years ago. We just didn't, we didn't know about it at the time. But the early astronomers, they, could see, they knew what they could see, what you could see without a telescope, and you can see the moon. You could see stars. You know, not really part of our solar system, but we know one star in our solar system. Planets, five planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And they also knew about comets and meteors. Didn't understand exactly what they were, but those were things that they could see in the sky. So now we know. What do we know today? Well, numbers probably a little outdated. They're probably pushing 180 or so moons right now in the solar system. So they knew one, our moon, that we see. In, see, nice, pretty, almost full moon this morning. Um, so they knew that one. Now there's more than 150, 160, 170 more moons that we know in the solar system. We do know that there's a star there. Early astronomers knew about the sun and stars, but didn't realize that the sun was just one of those stars way out there someplace. We now know eight planets from five. We've added three more planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Earth. Right? Early astronomers wouldn't have considered the Earth to be a planet. The Earth was something completely different from the other objects. So added three more planets there. We also know certainly comets and meteors we still know about, but we've learned about things like asteroids that have been discovered. We've learned about dwarf planets, Pluto being one of those that have been discovered since then. Kuiper belt objects, there's a belt of objects way out here, out past the orbit of Neptune. There's also the asteroid belt here in between Mars and Jupiter. Another belt of objects, slightly different. These are rockier, these are icier, being further away from the sun. But there's also these big swarms of objects scattered around. And even further out, we'd see another cloud of material, the Oort cloud of material, which is where the comets originate. So comets originate from between the Kuiper belt and the Oort cloud. So our solar system has expanded greatly. We've added planets. We've added a lot of moons. We've added dwarf planets. We've added asteroids and all sorts of other things as our understanding has improved over the last few hundred years, it's really changed. Most of this was discovered recently. Uh, Uranus was discovered in the late 1700s. Neptune was in the 1800s. The first asteroids were the very early 1800s that they were discovered. Um, dwarf planets, Pluto was discovered in 1930. Other Kuiper Belt objects weren't discovered until around 2000 or so. So most of this is very, very recent, the last few, last few hundred years that we've been able to add. The moons, moons were not discovered until, well, Galileo discovered the first couple with the telescope uh, back about 400 years ago. So till then, and then other ones were discovered shortly after that and around, but most of this, for most of human history, was not, was not known. So when we split up the planets, we're going to split them up into two different classes. There are two different types of planets. And this is a table from your textbook here. But the planets naturally divide into two groups. 
There are terrestrial planets, planets like the Earth. And there are Jovian planets, planets like Jupiter. And the table gives you some of the different uh, properties. And they're really almost completely op complete opposites. If you know something about one of them, the other one is completely opposite. So in our case, in our solar system, terrestrial planets are close to the sun. All the Jovian planets are far away from the sun. The orbits are closely spaced together for the terrestrial planets. You've got four planets within one and a half astronomical units. It's a big distance. Yeah, an astronomical unit is 93 million miles, right? It's a big distance. But they're relatively closely spaced compared to the outer solar system where Jupiter is five astronomical units away from the sun. The next planet is 10, showing twice as far away. The next one is 20 and then 30. So you're going very, very big distances in order to get out here. So this between Jupiter and Neptune is 25 astronomical units. Between Mercury and Mars is a little over one at their closest. So big difference into how closely spaced they are. Masses are all very small for the terrestrial planets. The Earth is the largest, most massive of the terrestrial planets. And it doesn't even begin to compare to the smallest of the Jovian planets. You could fit several Earths easily inside any of those. So small mass, small, small radius. So both of those are very small. Rocky, the terrestrial planets have a surface. We could actually land on any of those planets. And we've landed on three of the four. There's only one of those we have not landed on yet is Mercury. We've had spacecraft that have landed on Venus. We've certainly been on the Earth a little bit. And we've landed a number of spacecraft on Mars. But we could land on, we could land on Mercury. That's just something that has not been done not been done yet, being so close to the sun, more difficult to actually get spacecraft there. In fact, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that we actually had the first spacecraft that orbited Mercury and is studying it in detail. Until that, until that time, we only knew about, a, about half to uh, half or so of Mercury's surface that had been photographed when one spacecraft flew by it back in the 1970s. So until very recently, Mercury has really been, a, still been a mystery to us. So Rocky versus gaseous planets. We haven't landed on any of those planets. We never will. There is no surface to land on. So they're gases, and the gases just get denser and denser as you go further down towards the core. So there's no way to land on Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, or Neptune, although you could land on some of their moons. Their moons all have solid surfaces, more comparable to the terrestrial planets. And we have landed on one moon, actually the large moon of Saturn, named Titan, actually has been landed on. We've had a lander there that explored that for a, a couple of hours. So we did have some studies of that. So never going to land on the surface of any of these. We did send a, a probe into Jupiter. Uh, when one spacecraft was there, it sent a probe that was to explore Jupiter's atmosphere. Sent us back as much information as it could. But the gas pressure gets denser and denser and denser as you get further and further down. And eventually, it's going to get crushed. It's going to be destroyed and the equipment is gone. Is gone. It just melds into the rest of whatever's down there with Jupiter. But did give us some information about the atmosphere while it was able to send that back. So rocky with a solid surface, gaseous, no solid surface. In terms of density, you have a very high density in the terrestrial planets, all much denser than water. So you get that giant bathtub, you can throw all of them in there and they're going to sink. Much denser, much denser than water. 
On the other hand, the much lower density for the Jovian planets. Uh, Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune are still denser than water, but not by much. You know, a little bit denser than water, so they'll still, they'd still sink. Saturn is actually less dense than water. So if you had that gigantic bathtub out there someplace, that's a pretty big bathtub to be talking about, you could float Saturn in it. Uh, rotation. The inner planets rotate relatively slow. Earth takes about 24 hours, right, to spin on its axis once. Mars is about the same. Mercury takes about 50-some days. Um, Venus takes over 200 days. So a day is very, very long in these, these planets. The Earth is the fastest rotator of them. Jupiter is the fastest rotator of the Jovian planets. And even though it's much bigger than the Earth, it whips around in a little under 10 hours. So day-night is very, very quick. If you could live in the atmosphere of Jupiter and look out, you know, sun rises and five hours later the sun sets. So very, very fast rotation. Saturn's a little bit slower than that, and Uranus and Neptune get into the 12, 13, 14 hour range. Still much, much, almost twice as fast as the Earth is rotating, even though they're much larger planets. Magnetic field-wise, we'll talk about that a little bit, but the magnetic fields in the inner planets are very small to non-existent. Earth has the strongest one again. All of the Jovian planets have much stronger magnetic fields. Rings and moons, um, there are no rings among planets in the inner solar system at all. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, none of them have a ring around them. Uh, in terms of moons, there's three moons, there's four planets and three moons in the inner solar system. Earth has one. Um, Jupiter, or sorry, Mars has two little tiny ones. That's it. If you recall my first slide, I said, what, 166 moons? That leaves 163 for the, those other four planets. They have incredible sets of moons, uh, 50, 60, 70 moons around each, around each of them. So lots of moons around these outer planets, lots of rings. Every single one of those has a set of rings around it. Saturn's is the one everybody knows about, right? Saturn has the big beautiful rings that you look at. But Jupiter actually has a small ring, Neptune has some small rings, and Uranus has a set of very uh, thin rings. So all of them actually have rings. So good comparison right there, a good table to know, have some idea of the, some of the different dif differences between the two sets, of, two sets of planets. All right, first chapter we're going to look at some of the little bits of the solar system, some of the little things that are out there. And then I'll come back and we'll look at the Earth and then we'll look at the different terrestrial planets and the Jovian planets separately. So comets. One of the first things, one of the things that were known to ancient astronomers are pretty much a ball of ice, or a ball of ice and dust pretty much out, out in space. They don't, they're not much, most of, their, most of their lives they're nothing, they're just a big ball. Think of them as a big fluffy snowball. So not a nicely packed snowball when you got the wet, wet stuff that packs together real well. The real fluffy stuff and even worse than that, you know, stuff that won't pack together. That's about what a, what a comet is like. It's a very fluffy nucleus, maybe 10 or 20 kilometers across. So you're talking 6, 10, 12 miles of big fluffy snow. But very low density. So not a lot of material, material there. We've explored the comets in terms of actually crashing a spacecraft into one. So to try to explore what it might be like, we actually put a spacecraft, actually put it in the path of the comet 
and let the comet smash into it and then went back later with another spacecraft to look and see you know, what we could learn about it. Don't get a big impact crater like you do on something like the moon. If you crash something into the moon, you're going to see an impact and remnants. You don't see that on a comet. Now the different parts of a comet, when it comes close to the sun, I said there's not much to it. It's usually just this little nucleus when it's way out in space. When it comes close to the sun, heats up, right? You got ice, you're heating it up. It's going to start to evaporate. It's not going to melt. You're never going to get liquid water out in space because there's no pressure. You need a certain amount of atmospheric pressure in order to get liquid water. But you can take those icy materials and convert them directly to a gas. And that's what happens here. You form around the comet. The nucleus stays there at the center as its material is uh, evaporated. You get a coma right around it of particles. Larger envelope even further around of hydrogen particles surrounding it. And you get tails of material pushing back from the comet. Actually, there's two, there are two tails that will form. And I think I look at that at the next slide. I'll double check it in, in a second here. But the tail will always be pushed back by the solar uh, pressure. So solar wind, solar radiation pressure pushes that material back. So no matter where the comet's going in its orbit, the tail is always backwards away from the sun. And that makes sense. Let me just see my next. Yeah, let me just do the next slide here with that to show you. So what that means is as the comet comes in this way, okay, the tail is lagging behind the comet. Right? That's what you think of a tail, right? The tail is going behind the comet. As it comes around and then starts to leave, now the tail still has to point away from the sun. So here the tail is lagging behind the comet. Here the tail is actually leading the comet as it heads away. But that's just because it's always going to point away from the sun. Two types of tails that you'll see. There is an ion tail or a gas tail that always points directly away from the sun. You see that here, straight away from the sun. Whatever way the sun is, that's going exactly the opposite direction. There's also a dust tail. Some of those dusty particles, a little bit bigger clumps of particles that are left behind. Those also push away from the sun, but they're heavier. So they lag behind the comet in its orbit a little bit. So they, instead of going straight back, they tend to lag behind and they form a little curved tail. That's why you see one tail here going straight back. That's the ion, ion tail or gas tail. And then the dust tail is curved away a little bit, still pointing away from the sun but curved away in the direction away behind it in its orbit. So you'll see two different types of tails on a comet. And we have uh, what the nice comet supposed to be coming uh, this fall. So we'll hopefully get some nice images of that coming up. And it's going to pass very, very close to the sun. Depending on how close it is, I said this is a big fluffy snowball, right? If you get too close to the sun, it's gone. It's going to be torn apart. It's going to be fully evaporated. We don't know exactly how close it's going to get or how stable that nucleus is. So if it passes around the sun, that's going to be a big question until it actually happens, either happens or doesn't happen. If it comes back around, it's going to be an incredibly bright comet at the very end of this year and the beginning of next. It's going to be a real bright comet. Because it got so close to the sun, it's going to have a great tail, a great coma, be nicely visible. Of course, if it gets evaporated there, then we're not going to see much of anything. So. 
One thing to look forward to later this semester, we have a possibility of actually seeing a nice comet with these kind of tails that's actually supposed to be visible in the northern hemisphere. The last couple that were nice like this were nice if you were down in Australia or New Zealand. But if you were up here, they were always below the horizon, so you never got to really see them. All right, now related to comets, here's a comet orbit again. But jumping on to the next topic of meteors. Meteors, right, we see those, that's a shooting star. You go out at night and you see a shooting star in the sky. Can confirm it's not an airplane first, right? But if you see a shooting star in the sky, it's usually a little tiny bit of a comet burning up in our atmosphere. What happens when the comet, remember that comet had that big coma and that tail? Well, not all that material stays with it. It gets left behind the comet in its orbit. So the comet's orbit is actually strewn with all these, all these little particles. Sometimes, if the comet broke up, eventually it gets too close to the sun, all those particles will just be all more spread out. As it eventually, at some point, the Earth may pass through that bit of the comet's orbit. And if it does, then we actually see a meteor shower. So that's when you see the Perseid meteor shower in August, second week in August. The, the Earth is actually passing through the orbit of a comet and collecting all those little tiny particles. Grains of sand are smaller. They're tiny, teeny, tiny little bits. And they strike the Earth's atmosphere at very high speeds and burn up. They never make it down to the ground. So typical, a typical meteor that you see is burned up way up above very highest atmosphere. Never makes it down close to the surface of the Earth. There are larger particles that are formed from bits of asteroids that you can actually get rocks, you can get bigger things that can actually make it down to the Earth and be seen as meteorites. But the typical meteors that you see are all little teeny tiny particles, little tiny dust particles, little tiny grains of sand, and they all burn up very early when they're, as they're striking the Earth's atmosphere. But what you're really seeing is little bits of a comet. Little tiny bits of comets that are left over, may have been dropped off, you know, hundreds, thousand years ago, still just traveling around in that orbit, you know, following Kepler's laws, they're still going to, even though it's a little tiny particle, it's still going to follow the same orbit until the Earth happens to bump into it. Question, yeah? So meteors, we run into them and they run into us pretty much? Um, combination, I mean we're both moving, so, but it's the Earth moving into the meteor shower that really into the stream of particles that really that will really cause it, but I mean, yeah, technically they're moving as well, so it's a collision, in in a, in effect. All right, when we get some of those larger objects, yeah, meteors, the typical meteors you see don't do this. Even if one of those little grains of sand could make it down to the Earth's surface, it wouldn't do anything like this. Uh, this is actually a crater in Arizona, and. That probably occurred tens of thousands of years ago. So a larger object, give you an idea of the scale, this bar here is one kilometer. So about a kilometer across, maybe a little bit more in size. In order to form a crater that large, you need an object hitting it that's about one-tenth the size. So a crater will actually form, will be about ten times larger than the object that formed it. So that only takes, to form a crater like that, takes an object the size of a football field. Pretty big. Try to imagine detecting all those out in space. Imagine a dark football field floating out through space. 
it's not easy to tell. So trying to detect some of the biggest ones we can get, the real big ones we can usually detect and you hear, you know, this asteroid passed really close to the Earth or passed between the Earth and the Moon. Little ones like this would be hard to detect until it was too late. Now, they also would not be catastrophic, but they'd be catastrophic if it happens to hit, hit us, you know, if it hits Harrisburg, you know, Harrisburg is wiped out. Now that wipes out completely. The impact is a kilometer across, six-tenths of a mile. That wipes out a big chunk of the city. And that's not counting all the damage that goes on a little bit further out than that. You know, it's not going to just confine to the edge, of, edge rim of the crater and then all of a sudden, you know, you don't get there and then you have all the nice buildings still standing up around it. You know, that would wipe out a, a small city pretty easily. But it wouldn't be catastrophic in terms of earth threatening. You need much larger ones when you start talking about things that are several kilometers in size or tens or even hundreds of kilometers in size. Then you start worrying about things that could actually, you know, wipe out life on the planet. Something like this, you know, could certainly do significant damage if it happened to hit land or sea. Right? Hit, hit sea, hit the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you're still going to form a pretty big tidal wave that will you know, cause havoc to California, to Japan, Australia, you know, depending on where you happen to be. But we do see evidence. We do get hit by larger objects. You know, we have evidence of a few craters on Earth. Not near as many as we see on the Moon. For, for, mainly for the reason that the Moon has no atmosphere and the Moon has no weathering effects. If we could come back in 20, 30,000 years, this crater would pretty much be gone on the Earth. Right? It rains. You know, even out in Arizona, it rains. You got wind. You're slowly taking off. You know, maybe only a few centimeters every year, a few millimeters every year, but you're slowly filling this in. Things are slowly washing down. If you could come back in tens of thousands or 100,000 years, it would be gone. You don't have those effects on the moon. That's why the moon is covered with craters because even ones that formed a billion years ago are still there. There's nothing to, nothing to destroy them. Whereas a crater that like this that formed on the Earth a billion years ago well, would have been easily washed out long, before, long, long ago. Uh, let me see, what time are we? Let me get started. I'll just get started on this and I'll really come into the formation of the solar system on Friday. Uh, so how did the solar system form? And this is sort of the very beginning of it. We looked at some of the little bits and pieces already, um, but this is, at some point, there was some big cloud of gas and something happened to it. Now a big cloud of gas and dust out in space, we'll come back to this model several more times. You'll see something similar to this when we talk about how stars form and we talk about how galaxies form. Very similar process, just on a different scale. So something happens to that gas cloud. It's very slowly spinning, as in maybe taking thousands of years, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands to spin around once. It's probably light years in size. So light years across. But something happens to it. Something happens to get it collapsing, get it started collapsing. It won't just collapse on its own. It needs some, some sort of kick. A uh, couple things that might happen is maybe two clouds collide with each other. right? Two and you start collapse, you start material collapsing. Maybe another star formed off to the distance here, you know, light year or two away, and it exploded in a supernova explosion and sent out a shock wave that compressed part of this. Essentially what happens is something gets it started. Something starts that collapse and as you start to form a condensation of material at the center, gravity kicks in. Eventually you get enough material there that gravity kicks in and starts to pull more material in. So it becomes a runaway effect. 
something starts it collapsing and then gravity kicks in and starts to pull all that material down. As it pulls down, it's going to spin faster and faster, right? You watch the ice skater spinning, put their arms out as they start spinning, they pull them in and they spin faster. Put your arms back out again, you start spinning slower again. So you can change the speed. All that is, is the same thing happening here. You're taking all this material that's way out at light year distant and you're bringing it into things that are astronomical units away. Well, you're bringing all that material from very far away to very close in. It, it will also spin up. It will spin faster and faster. So that gets to the, where we get all of the spin in our solar system. How fast the planets are spinning around the sun. How fast the sun is spinning on its own axis all comes from the original rotation of this cloud which is sped up as it collapses down. And then we also see as it collapses further a star is starting to form at the center. That's our going to will be our sun eventually and there's some material that collapses down into this disk around it. Eventually that is what will form the solar system. So very beginning of it you start off with a cloud you start collapsing it down. Something has to start that collapse. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I'll come back and review this one and pick that up on Friday and then we'll go in and talk about the Earth, Earth, Moon and probably get, get well into the terrestrial planets at least. Question, questions? Don't forget article reviews are due on Friday. If you're going to turn it in, in class, of course, I need it then. If you're going to turn in a paper copy, if you're going to submit it on D2L, you've got until 6 o'clock on Saturday.